If you brought along a copy of the Bible, please turn to our reading from Revelation. Revelation chapter 15. Notice verse 5. John, the narrator, he sees heaven open and these seven angels are coming out of it. And then in verse 7, Revelation chapter 15, verse 7, these four living creatures give these angels, notice, seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. And then in chapter 16, verse 1, God tells these angels to pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And then the rest of chapter 16 runs through each of these bowls of God's wrath and describes for us what happens when they're poured out. Now, what's this all about? Remember, the book of Revelation is a comic book. It's the Marvel comic movie version of what's going to happen in the mid to late 60s of the first century A.D. It's written in the early 60s. This is written from God. He gives it to John. And he tells John to send it to the Christians in these teeny tiny little churches that are scattered around Asia Minor. What we call today Western Turkey. So here are these little communities of Christians. This handful of small churches on the frontier of the Roman Empire. And it's the early 60s of the first century. And they've been experiencing some persecution from the Jewish people. But that persecution is about to crank up to a 10. And the key to figuring out what chapter 16 is going on about is to go back to chapter 6. Look at Revelation chapter 6 verse 9. Something we saw several months ago. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice. So these are martyrs, people who've been killed because of their commitment to Jesus. And, and they're in heaven and they're crying out. And look what their prayer is. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? Before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. How long until you're going to avenge us? Like we're in heaven because we died out of loyalty to you. When will you be loyal back? Then notice the answer. That's their cry. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until, this is the key, the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Wait a minute, martyrs. Rest. There's got to be more. Wait until others who are going to be killed like you come to join you. So here's the point. In the early 30s of the first century AD, Jesus was killed. He was martyred. Out of his loyalty to the Father, Jerusalem and Rome turned on him and brutally murdered him. 
But God was faithful to him. And God raised him from the dead. And almost immediately, the early Christians began to spread the good news that in Jesus' death and resurrection, God has taken into himself evil and sin and the devil and all the darkness of the world. And God has judged it. And God has opened the door to the new creation, to the healing of all things. And they began to spread throughout the Roman Empire, telling people God's kingdom has arrived. God's answer to the evil of the world has come. Something new has happened. And everyone can come into this kingdom. If you will repent and give your love and your loyalty to the king, then that new creation energy, that new creation power, the source of light and love itself will flow into your life and begin to remake you. And give you the ability to forgive. And give you the ability to extend works of goodness and kindness. And you will be reconciled to God. And you will be forgiven of your sins. And you will be given a part and a share in God's kingdom. They began to spread throughout the Roman Empire and tell that story. And the book of Acts shows us the early church doing this. And a very interesting thing occurs all through Acts. When the first Christians spread this message... The Jewish nation turned on them, and all through the book of Acts, when the first Christians are being persecuted by the Jews, they call out to Rome for protection. Over and over in Acts, the early Christians appeal to Rome. Some of you might be familiar with Paul at one point. He's about to get in trouble, and he says, I'm a Roman citizen. And over and over in Acts, Rome protects Christians from the persecution of the Jews. But by the time we get 30 years later, into the early 60s, we have the book of Revelation. And in this book, God is telling the Christians, the Jewish nation is about to get far more intense in its persecution, and Rome is about to change. And Rome is going to go from protecting you to killing you. Rome has been protecting you. The Roman officials have been stopping you when they get the chance. But that's going to change. And when that changes, and when Rome and Israel turn against the tiny Christian movement, it'll be like a pincher move. And when that happens, many people, many Christians are going to be killed for the faith. And that's what's described at the end of Revelation chapter 14. Notice, Revelation 14, I looked and behold, a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown in his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the throne, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he sat on the cloud, swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out, and he too had a sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So in, the first, in verses 14 to 16, wheat is harvested. In verses 17 through 20, grapes are harvested, bread and wine. The Christians are harvested from the earth. From heaven's perspective, this is a Eucharistic offering. This is Christians giving their lives in thanks and gratitude. From the earth's perspective, it's a brutal persecution. But heaven receives it. And notice what it says 
in verse 19. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came from it. The blood of the Christians is squeezed out. Now here's the key. When we get to the end of chapter 14, what we have seen is that the blood of the martyrs Remember chapter 6. When will you avenge us? There's more. When the full measure of martyrs have arrived. And when we get to the end of chapter 14, the blood of the martyrs has ascended to heaven and it has filled the cup of God's wrath. And the bowls of God's wrath are now filled with the blood from the winepress of persecution. So what's going on in chapter 16 is a highly symbolic description of God's judgment on Israel and Rome for killing the Christians. Chapter 16 is God answering the cry of the martyrs in chapter 6. How long until you avenge us? Just a little longer. Until the full measure of the martyrs have arrived in heaven. So, for example, jump to chapter 16, look at verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. What's done? The full measure of the martyrs have arrived in heaven. In other words, we have finally arrived at God's inevitable response to the bloody destruction of his church. And that's the earthquake in verse 18. In verse 18, there's a shaking of the earth. And in verse 19, the great city is split into three parts. In other words, God is going to destroy the world that's destroying the church. The great city split into three parts. That's Jerusalem. And we know that in the late 60s of the first century, Jerusalem splintered into factions. And there were nearly as many Jews killed by Jews as Romans who killed those Jews when they invaded the city. And look at the last part of verse 19. We're told that not just the great city is destroyed, but the cities of the nations fell. We know that in, remember this is written in the early 60s, we know that in the late 60s, the Roman Empire was engulfed in crisis. And so eventually in late 60s, in one year alone, there were four emperors in Rome. Can you imagine what would happen to America if we had so much turmoil that we had president after president after president all in the space of one year? That's what happened in the the empire of Rome. You see, the point is God is tearing Israel and Rome apart, institutions and cities that had lasted for centuries and centuries and centuries that they felt like they were eternal were suddenly shaken and they were proved to be fragile under the wrath of God. Now here's the issue. Why did God strike Israel and Rome in the late 60s of the first century? Why did God pour out his wrath on them? He was avenging the blood of the martyrs. Listen again to the poem in the middle of chapter 16. Verse 5, I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was. Why is he just? Why is he proven to be a just God? 
for you brought these judgments. Why did God bring judgment on Israel and Rome? Look what it says. For they shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, who's under the altar? Back in chapter 6, the martyrs. I heard them saying, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. This is exactly what should have happened. Now, let's stop here for just a minute. I think some of us are deeply offended by such brutal justice. And this poem celebrates an act of judgment that violates some of us, our sensibilities. I think a lot of us tend to imagine God without wrath. And so this is hard for us. In fact, this view of God, a God like Lin-Manuel Miranda said, love is love is love is love is love, a love that is emptied and sheared off of justice. A lot of us, we tend to see that about God. And this is a hallmark of mainstream Western Christianity over the past hundred years or so. H. Richard Niebuhr, one of America's most famous 20th century theologians, he once talked about how a growing number of churches, and this was in the early 30s, 1930s, a growing number of churches in America, their way of talking about God and Jesus and his kingdom was a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. But the struggle that we have with God's wrath really says more about the indulgent sentimentality of the prosperous West than the reality of justice. What I'm saying is Christians in the Middle East or Asia or Africa or in some parts of Latin America who are facing brutal, violent persecution, do not flinch at Revelation 16. Flinching at this chapter is the luxury of rich white people. It's the luxury of living in a nation that has not experienced brutal acts of government-perpetrated evil for decade upon decade upon decade. We here in the West are awash in victim politics. But there are comparatively few real victims. Real victims are not shy about demanding retribution and celebrating it when it comes. The truly oppressed long for someone to restore the balance. And if you've ever had an act of great evil perpetrated against you, you know that the cry of the martyrs in Revelation 6 comes quite naturally. The inability to be indignant to the point of wrathful anger over injustice is an act of injustice. 
Do you remember the civil rights movement? Can you now go back and read and see the white Christians in America who refuse to become indignant? That in and of itself, the refusal to become wrathfully angry over injustice is unjust. And a God without wrath would be an accomplice to injustice, deception, and violence. And if God were not angry at injustice and deception, and he did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of worship. It takes the quiet of a suburban home to give birth to the belief that the wrath of God is incompatible with love. But when we turn to the places in our world where there is a scorched land soaked with the blood of the innocent, that suburban belief dies. And so here's something we can learn from such a strange, dark passage of Scripture. If you hunger for righteousness then receive the word of the wrath of God poured out on evil. If you cry out in hopeless pain, hear this word of the wrath of God poured out on all foul disease and cruelty. And if you cannot read the newspaper without weeping for children who are abused and war widows who grieve without consolation, And people who starve from knots of grass in their stomach. Then hear the word of the wrath of God poured out on injustice. And pray. Pray that it would be true. That that would be the kind of God there really is. That's the first thing I think we need to hear from this passage. We need to learn to stand with the victims of unjust acts and cry out for vengeance. But there's another thing we can learn. So if I've just assaulted the liberals in the room, let me now assault the conservatives. There's another challenge in this passage. If the first lesson was for those of us with liberal instincts... Here's one for those of us with far more conservative, Republican-leaning instincts. In this strange and dark passage of Scripture, God is calling us to look critically at the United States of America. Let me show you what I mean. Remember what is driving God's wrath? The blood of the martyrs, right? That's the driving thing. Now, this is something that is very important in Scripture. When God looks at nations, he does not look for democracy or not democracy. When God evaluates nations, the key issue is how do those nations treat his people? And when you recognize this in scripture, you see that there's three types of nations in the Bible. One type of nation in the Bible is described as Babel. Remember what happened at the Tower of Babel. When a nation is like Babel, we see a nation that cruelly imposes a uniform pattern on the world. 
whether it's economic or political or cultural. In the Bible, Babel is the prototype of all those empires that are intolerant of difference. Not all nations demand homogeneity, but those who do are Babel nations. And God doesn't like that. And whatever success a nation has, it's squeezing everyone into a single pattern. In the end, God opposes all such projects because at the end of the day, those nations build their nations on the blood of the innocents. But the pure blood of the innocents will be received by heaven. And it is toxic to those nations. Another fundamental type of nation we meet in the Bible, the Bible describes not as Babel, but as a beastly nation. And that's what we have here in Revelation chapter 16 with Rome and Israel. We have nations that have become beasts. They feast on the blood of the Christians. And all through the Bible, when a nation turns on the people of God, it's described as a beast, a beastly nation. A third type of nation in the Bible is the nation that offers refuge to the people of God. For example, in Jeremiah, God commanded his people to go to Babylon because Babylon would receive them and give them refuge. Babylon offered Israel refuge. See, the Bible is not against empire. It depends on the kind of empire. For the Bible, it depends. And the thing it depends on is how does the empire treat the people of God? Do you see that in Revelation 16? The turning point with God, God's relationship with Israel and Rome is how do they treat God's people? The key distinguishing mark in the Bible for an empire is not is it an empire or not? Not does it have power or not? The key distinguishing mark is do they guard and give refuge to my people? Do they honor my people and protect them? Because if they become beasts and they get drunk on holy blood, I will destroy them. That's the message of Revelation 16. The empires that bless the church are blessed, and those that curse the church are cursed. This is what God promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and this is a massively important point. The Bible condemns violence, yes, but bloodthirsty injustice in itself is not enough to make an empire a beast. Empires turn bestial when they eat God's people and drink their blood. And so what we're seeing in the book of Revelation is that when the saints witness to the point of shedding blood, they are beginning to reduce the empires, the foundations of the empire to rubble. Heaven receives the blood of the saints, but then the angels turn that blood back and pour it on the land and it destroys the land. And what can we learn from this? As we think about America, we have got to realize that Christianity does not fit easily into the two-party system. There are parts of Republican kind of approach to life that Christianity is very supportive of, but there are other parts of it that Christians must critique. There are parts of the kind of liberal Democratic Party that Christianity deeply lines up with. But there are other parts of it that it doesn't line up with. And we've got to recognize that even though we have to live our lives in a two-party world, we don't fit in either place comfortably. So let's think about America, not through the lens of Democrat or Republicans, but through the lens the Bible gives us for thinking about nations. 
Is America a refuge for Christians? From the start, America has been good to Christians. And not just Christians, but in the words of Thomas Paine, America is, quote, an asylum for the persecuted lovers of civil and religious liberty from every part of Europe. And in the poem of Emma Lazarus, emblazoned, On the Statue of Liberty, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shores. Send these, the homeless, tempest most to me. In fact, alone among all of the major powers of the world today, the United States officially integrated promotion of religious freedom into our foreign policy. In 1998, with the International Religious Freedom Act, we did a thing that no other superpower in the world did. And we established an office of international religious freedom at the State Department. Is there another nation that gives any support or recognition to the voice of the martyrs? Not that I know of. What other country would intervene to save an Afghan convert to Christianity who faced death for apostasy? Officially, it is not uncommon for America to exert our superpower influence to defend martyrs rather than slaughter them. And in this instance, we use our power the way power is supposed to be used. America has been a refuge, but that is not all there is to us. We have also been a babble. This is part of our story too. From our treatment of the Native Americans to our treatment of slaves, we have built our nation by enforcing homogeneity through the blood of the innocents. Our foreign policies too often cloak a belief that everyone should be like us. Too often we have claimed to work for international order only to spread confusion. We love free market economics, but we have never pursued a policy of global free trade. We have tilted the global economy against competition from the developing countries. Our farmers feed the world, but our tariff policy destroys the Latin American farmers. That's Babel. That's exactly what the empire of Babel is accused of in the Bible. My point is, we must not be blind to either the vices or the virtues of America. And when America violently imposes our will on the world, we are acting against the better interest of our country. Because God receives the blood of the martyrs. And when we look at America through the lens of Scripture, it gives us a way of thinking about our nation that allows us to affirm the good and the bad in both parties. There's one more category. When a nation becomes a beast, America is not a beast. Neither domestically nor internationally do we directly and deliberately suppress Christian faith and Christian churches. And yet, here's the problem. America cozies up with nations of beasts. We cozy up to regimes that brutally persecute Christians. As a nation, we enjoy the company of beasts. It's a remarkable thing to look at the UN's list and the various other governmental agencies' list of countries that are intolerant of religion and Christianity and to put it next to a list of the nations that receive America's support. We are not a nation of beasts, but we cozy up with beasts. We buy the booze even if we're still teetotalers. We do not drink the blood of the saints, but we support nations that do. We're not a beast, but we spend a lot of our wealth to keep some of the world's most ferocious beasts in business. We play with beasts. 
We fund our favorite beast. And we turn a blind eye too often when they devour the saints. And that is a dangerous place to be. Those who consort with beasts might become bestial. And beasts do not survive. Because God is king. And he will avenge the the blood of the martyrs. And so we must call our nation and our city and our school system to be a truly democratic, pluralist community that really does protect Christians. And I'll close with this. Church, remember who you are and to whom you belong. Remember that you belong to Jesus first and last. And remember, America is not the body of Christ. America is not the hope of the world. The church is. The church is the hope of the world. And remember that no matter how much America has served God, America is accountable to God. And so we need to read a passage like Revelation 16. And we need to learn to hear from God. A voice that challenges all of us. Let's pray.